This episode of Perspectives YYC is brought to you by InVentures, a chance to connect with the best and brightest in global innovation. Join more than 4,000 creatives and curious minds on the frontier of innovation. There are more than 250 speakers on six program tracks, including the future of AI, which is uh, pretty interesting considering today's episode. InVentures connects entrepreneurs and startups with venture capitalists, angel investors, service providers, and thought leaders. The conference includes an education track for students, too. Alberta Innovates is making all of this possible in Calgary between June 3rd and June 5th. Tickets are only $399 if you buy before the end of April. If you're a student, you can get a ticket for just $199. Get your tickets today at InVenturesCanada.com. That's I-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S, InVenturesCanada.com. Now, for today's episode, I've got a very interesting talk for you today. Uh, two years ago, I met a very fascinating man who was really into computers, specifically uh, phone app construction, at least I thought at the time. He showed up randomly at an art show I'd put on, and we struck up a conversation about technology and art. I then found out he was teaching at the University of Calgary, and he gave me the opportunity to work with his students on building an app, an art app. While it didn't conclude in anything market-ready, it was an amazing experience, and we've since kept in touch about that next opportunity to bring technology and creativity together. Here's my talk with Sasha Ivanovich about the tech world of today, his field of evolutionary computing, and a general warning, if you're frightened of artificial intelligence, of algorithms, and computers in general, this will probably not assay any of your fears. But if we can get more people like Sasha running the show, I'm pretty sure we can delay our inevitable robot overlords for enough time to keep making amazing, interactive, and expensive art together. Uh, thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy my talk with Sasha Ivanovich about the future of technology and art. You know, yeah, yeah. A, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah, and I'm hoping, yeah, again, like I'm hoping with this, like the HoloLens headset, like Apple actually comes out with a competitor for it. Uh, and those are what's in the rumor mill right mm. now. It's like Apple's working on an AR headset and it's like, that is the coolest thing if they do it. Like, I really hope so. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Well, let's let's yeah, start. So, I mean, right. I, we'll see how much we can keep in of our intro, but okay, I'll, sure. I'll just, yeah, just, sure. So I'm sitting here with Sasha. Uh, I, how do I pronounce your last name? Uh, Ivanov. Ivanov. Yes, Sasha uh, Ivanov. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. So we met a year ago, ish. Ish. Yeah. yeah. Give or take. Yeah. Maybe, no, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, maybe a little bit more now. But yeah. Um, um, yeah so I, I actually don't remember. I mean, I remember meeting at Vintage, but who were you there with? Was it Taylor? Was it Austin? Was it Matt Mort? I completely showed up randomly. Oh, that's I awesome. I completely just walked in because uh, I was interested in actually asking, um, you know, like I, so I um, at the time was teaching the iOS class at the University of Calgary and um, I wanted to, I was actually just looking for, to bring some clients into the class. So as part of the class, um, people around Calgary can pitch their app ideas to the students. And then if they'd like, they can, you know, the students can work with them or the students can come up with their own idea. So, um, I was looking for folks and I thought, Hey, I love creative industries. I saw there was a little event going on and I thought I'll just swing by real quick. So, really? Yeah. I just walked in. Yeah. So, so. Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just oh, me. So yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, Matt Mort, like, totally, you know, know him. And, you know, that, oh, yeah. I just kind of, I saw what he was up to. He was like, oh, it seems like there's something going on here. So and Matt's like the, uh, he's like everywhere. It's totally. the underpinning of Calgary. Yeah. And now <laughs> beyond. Again, right? Yeah. yeah. So there you go. Yeah. yeah so. Kyle told me one of their videos went, uh, I don't know, viral or whatever. I don't know how big that term encompasses anymore, but apparently it did really well. Well. Yeah. Something about a Christmas party. But that's exciting. Yeah. I need to look that up. That's super cool. <laughs> We're always curious to see, like, yeah, these yeah. viral. Yeah. So. Yeah, he's such a pleasant boy. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, we met there, and then we started chatting, and then I found out you were uh, teaching iOS classes and that you were uh, fairly adept at computer and, and iOS stuff. Coding stuff. Yeah. I don't understand it all. <laughs> uh, so before we get into the, the project, I mean, 
you know, uh, maybe you could tell me about that. What, 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 what is it that you do? What's why are you so do? good at it? Yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, I do, um, I say I like to do creative coding projects. That is kind of my thing. So whatever I, I can combine like technology and some kind of cool, like design kind of spin on it. I think that's always cool. And so, um, right now I kind of, yeah, I mostly have dabbled in iOS development. So, uh, it just, I, I really kind of like Apple's way they've set up the coding environment. Um, but you know, like to mess around with VR and, you know, other kind of tech, it's always fun. Um, and lately I'm really interested in like AI and kind of how that can be used in these creative spaces too. And it's just like tons of stuff there. So yeah, that's kind of what I do. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just to get a brief framework, um, I mean, you're teaching the class at uh, U of C. You're, I just found out you're finishing your master's thesis. Yes. Or attempting to. I mean, yeah. Yes. So, review. yeah. So basically, um, yeah, over the last couple of years, I've been working on a master's thesis at U of C. And uh, we've been looking at uh, this thing called evolutionary computing. So basically, uh, it's kind of a field of AI where it's inspired by nature, where um, let's say you wanted to design a chair. Uh, instead of doing it by hand, what you could do is take two baby chairs and they, you could like breed them together and they'd have a baby chair and like you could keep doing that forever until you get to the design you want. So it's kind of a fun, uh, um, yeah, it's kind of a way to design things without having to do the manual work. Uh, and it's kind of based on nature's way of doing it because it, you can kind of optimize for like the strongest structural integrity of the chair with the least amount of materials and it'll come up with some weird design and uh, do kind of all the nitty gritty work for you. So, yeah. So I guess the, the main limitation then just becomes about what type of, uh, limitations you put on these environmental, uh, orders. I don't know what you would call them. But yeah. Structure. Yeah, yeah exa exactly. So you can basically put them through like a, um, like a test track and see how they hold up in like the dem like the test and if they fail, maybe those designs will be less likely to come up in the future as you keep evolving the chairs. Has, has, so, has any of that been already implemented in industrial design as far as you know? Yeah. So kind of looking into it, it's kind of, um, interesting because right now, um, kind of like neural networks and stuff are pretty hot right now, but the evolutionary computing side of things is kind of a little, um, I say like underlooked a bit. Um, there are some places that have been kind of looking at it. So, um, Autodesk, for example, they have a research team that's been developing some cool stuff there in that kind of space. Um, uh, you know, but and a lot of research goes, you know, with video game design. Um, like if you've ever seen those videos where it's like the computer plays Super Mario by itself. And like that's basically using most likely like an evolutionary type system where um, learning from its own mistakes or trying to calculate based on its. Uh, so is it, it's a feedback loop, though, as well. Exactly. Yeah. So basically you like with Super Mario, it's like jumping through. If it falls and dies, it says, oh, I better jump at th that location next time I'm there. Or maybe I'll adapt my approach and then until it gets to the goal. Right. And every time. I, yeah. So hmm. it's a very. But yeah. And it's interesting because computers, they often come up with very different solutions than a human would. Right. Because it's kind of um, just trying to get to the, the flagpole at the end of the track. Right. And, and whoever can get there, you know, if it's jumping the whole time maybe that's the best way it found to do it it's weird so um, I mean, do you think that there's i mean when i'm listening to describe it i get my old person paranoia of this is exactly why people were afraid of computers to begin with yeah <laughs> uh, and then i hear that they come up with different sort of ways or pathways to get to a selected goal i mean they're you're not yet selecting their own goal which is uh Maybe the, the that last wall in which we'll disappear as species, but um, is that why that there's still not as much? Uh, we don't have to be afraid because, like, what is it? It sounds like that they can uh, essentially, or not they. That's already uh, maybe humanizing it too much, but a program or an intentional design can already outperform a task that any human. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in, in many ways, like it's uh, especially with the. Um, well, you know, um, I'd say we're like this next decade is going to be the decade where we really find out how powerful these AIs can get. 
and uh, for better or for worse, hopefully for better. I think um, the main thing though is like there are going to need to be some restrictions, like um, because to a computer, if if you say, um, it, you know, really it, it kind of depends. It really is just trying to get to a goal. Like that's kind of how these programs work, right? So um, if it was Super Mario in real life, it wouldn't care if. Mario was like, you know, jumping and destroying buildings to get to the goal, right? Like, um, the second we have robotics involved, it gets kind of a little more dangerous potentially. As long as the computer system doesn't have access to, like, there needs to be limitations, very clear rules that the computer cannot cross, right? Um, but uh, to make rules that are that it will not find a loophole around is tough, right? Because a computer would say, well, you told me not to do this, but well, this is technically not it, right? right so it right. could kind of go around. But I think it's going to play a huge role in, in the next decade or so, uh, especially as we get robotics involved. And, um, you know, uh, like uh, one area I'm interested in is the kitchen. I think the kitchen is just a dated system that, you know, like these, you know, the stove came out in the 1940s or something. You know, like it's pretty old, you know, that concept. Um, yeah, I think I think with this combination of robotics and AI, um, in all of these different industries, we're going to have another kind of like uh, industrial revolution type scenario where it's like, okay, this is uh, now that computers can see and understand certain trivial concepts, they can actually, uh, a human doesn't have to say, okay, move to the left and then take the knife down to like cut the onion and like program it manually. It can just understand how to do that with the goal type system. So it's kind of interesting. So. Anyways, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of a little ranty. Yeah, no, yeah. no, it's good. Yeah, I, so <laughs> my my instinctual thought is that you'll have to have people who are designing these coding environments for your artificial intelligence to be evolving, and then another stream of coding to evolve restrictions to the evolving computer. Mm -hmm. There, there has to be layers because human beings likely aren't going to be able to keep up with. We won't catch it. We will not catch it if there's like a rogue AI. There's yeah. no way. And because uh, it will just kind of be Viral doing its thing. Was, yeah. And then suddenly we'll be like, oh, it's actually integrated in everything. Like it's like, you know, like, or it's like, it's everywhere. And um, I mean, again, it's, it's, I mean, you know, honestly, yeah. it's how nature works in many ways, you know, evolutionary, like on a full evolutionary scale, we, as human beings, uh, very short-windowed and narrow-minded and, and fearful. We don't like to hear that, but all evolution comes from a viral state, right? So absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah it's and that's the thing. These computer systems will evolve to get what they want, <laughs> which as long as yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So I mean, yeah. So we just have to be a little careful, and um, yeah, and programmers need to kind of yeah, like be kind of cognizant of like what they're building right and and the ethical implications of it i don't know like it's going to drive me to yeah self-driving car right but um yeah again there's all these issues that come up when sure. you know an accident yeah, could the, happen or you know yeah, what, yeah. what is the robot going to call you know what's the ai going to decide right it's, i remember like when it rudimentarily got uh started i think one of the main basic moral things that the computer could not solve as in we weren't happy with the result was like the yeah the no-win situation where the driver who's dying or you run over a pedestrian, you know, it's like, how do you problem. And yeah. we don't choose correctly either. <laughs> There's no correct choice. Yeah, That's no the hard choice. part, right? Yeah. But the second the machine makes the choice, it's... Right. Um, it's liable. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't been solved yet, right? And I, I don't know if it'll ever be uh, solved. But that being said, I don't think that should uh, deter us from developing this technology, right? Like, again, with self-driving cars, like there will be less accidents in general, you know? And so that in itself is, I think, a great thing, right? If, you know, yeah, cool, I so. can't wait. I hope in my lifetime I can nap to be transported somewhere. No be, problem. Pretty sweet. Uh, I presumably can actually already do that, but that's a whole other problem. Um, so uh, you then invited me, uh, going, so we're rewinding a little bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah, I love yeah, it. Because yeah, uh, it kind of brings me to the point that I was going to drive at. But um, before I get to that, I, I just want to quickly shout out that you did invite me to your class to pitch a project to your students um, under this premise, and not AI and, and taking over the world. Although <laughs> yeah, that, was, <laughs> that was my next no, uh, um, but with the underlying sort of uh, 
pitch to pitch a creative uh, or sort of old school traditional idea of creativity to students who are studying um, at least coding or creative thinking or just trying to build as something. Absolutely. And to my sort of surprise, three of your students actually uh, wanted to do something with me. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm not surprised at all. You know, you're doing creative stuff. I mean, yeah, it was fun. super cool, right? Yeah. So, And we tried uh, to build, you know, an app and AR, uh, AR and all this kind of stuff. And, and it quickly got out of hand. Uh, <laughs> as apps do. Yeah. yeah. And, and those, that world, I was introduced to that world uh, when they sent me, is it called Xcode or something? Yeah. Like, to download so they could, I was like, holy fuck, like, that, that program is like two gigabyte download it's the whole thing yeah, it's just a beast in itself yeah, exactly. you know yeah it's just this crazy yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i think even before that we you came to one of my um when i got the projectors on loan or maybe we talked about it but <clears throat> we were uh, projecting uh, yes we talked about this i yeah. didn't yeah i didn't get a chance to see it but yeah yeah it's totally uh, uh, yeah, yeah i had that small part-time gig where a, a company was sending me a giant projector but they gave me permission to use it for myself and so showed uh, AYE's like debut video on like the RBC uh, wall on uh, Stephen Avenue, and then I did the thing with uh, um, with Kane and uh, and Wayne Toe and uh, I think Leanna was there. Anyways, yeah. uh, by the library we w watched some movies on the parking lot. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, but, but then you were telling me uh, how exciting that would be to the your mind immediately went into how a computer could try to, to alter images to move around three dimensional objects and. Yeah, which is kind of how you think, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just this weird creative, yeah, again, like tech and artsy kind of stuff, right? And, and like, I guess, uh, yeah, with the projection stuff, like, I think projection mapping is such a cool technology. Like, um, you can really make it feel like, um, well, like when I visit Montreal, they have this great projection uh, set up all throughout the city, actually. Uh, and how it works is on, um, through an iPhone app, basically you can listen to the audio of stories playing throughout the city there's like little projection hotspots and um what you'll do is like uh we were just walking down kind of this small alley like place and suddenly we saw water like flowing under our feet from the projector uh and so we opened the app and it told a story about the history of that specific street and what happened there with the projection so i think that's a super powerful uh storytelling technique and uh, encourages people to explore yeah. the city you know if they're just visiting calgary we could share a similar story with, you know, that or so anyways, I, yeah, I think it's huge. Um, the potential of that tech. It's, do you, do you know if that Montreal one was through the a provincial or, or municipal government in, in tandem with something, or is that sort of a, an artist's, uh, using their space cause they have a sort of a different culture and a different, like, did they explain to you how that project came to be? Are you sure exactly who like funded it or what I, but I think it was through, all throughout the city. So it was, or, all throughout the, um, I think it's like the Old Town District is called. Yeah, so it was um, it was everywhere there. I believe that Moment Factory, that company, they do all the cool projection mapping stuff. Uh, they were the ones to actually do it. And so um, I'm sure they had some kind of deal with the city to, to do this because um, it it was like, I mean, it was all throughout. Like yeah, it was, it yeah, it was not like it was just the one little space, right? Yeah, it was yeah. like the whole, you know, good for tourists, right? So um yeah, I, I thought that was really amazing. And uh, yeah, I, I'd love to see something like that here, you know, and just people could be visiting. Um, and also I found that with the projector, it kind of made potentially kind of like uh, areas that were neglected more like interesting all of a sudden, right? So, you know, no one's walking down this kind of part of the town. Let's do something with it and maybe bring people there to show them the history of it. And, you know, so um, yeah. So anyways, yeah, AR tech. And, and I think um, as far as projection mapping goes, like that interaction with the phone to something that's public is really interesting too, that relationship. Because, um, you know, maybe I could, yeah, like draw a picture on my phone with like a little doodle and then it would, I could like send it right off onto the, you know, billboard or something, you know, kind of a fun thing. So obviously you have to, could be, you know, have to kind of moderate it a little bit those kind of things but yeah of course it's it'd be a cool thing right so uh, and this is exactly what i kind of want to talk to you about is um you know where calgary is going and then you know working in this way to put this kind of immersive and accessible art so it's not surrounded by the uh the rigor of fine art or having to be cultured or high society 
since every, well, that, that's a fairly sweeping statement, but um, it seems like every human being has some kind of device. Um, I don't Absolutely. know, statistically, it's probably not entirely true, but at least in Calgary, it seems like everybody's got an iPhone or an Android or something. Um, to be able to do an art project, not even just an art project, but yeah, like to do something culturally, that'd be amazing. Yeah, I think I think there's something to that, right? Like leaving your own um, mark in this digital space, right? It's kind of interesting. You can leave a memento of your you know presence there by maybe adding a comment to the mural, and and everyone could look through them, and you know, there's all these kind of um, yeah, just because I totally agree. Like you know, it's it's really interesting to see uh, an AR experience and try it. But once you try it, it's kind of like, okay, I know, okay, I saw it, you know. Right, right. Um, but if it's evolving, every time you go back, you're going to keep trying it, I'd say, right? Or you might want to check back and say, hey, like who else was here? Who did someone um, maybe comment back on my thing? And um, the fact that it's kind of with um, augmented reality and projection mapping, it's rooted kind of in the physical world. It potentially would give people reason to go back to that location just to check it rather than, you know, on Instagram, we just get, you know, someone liked your photo or whatever. I can check that anywhere. But uh, I think that we will kind of, I think there is something to having that physical um, kind of placeholder, like uh, physical kind of uh, grounding to it, right? Of a certain piece of art, right? And just like a physical piece of art, maybe that could make its way into the digital world, right? So. As someone who works in that field, do you believe, you must, well, no, I'm not going to make the assumption. As someone who works in that field, do you believe then that digital spaces have permanence? It's kind of interesting because, um, and I think there, there were some researchers actually looking into this at the university. Um, it wasn't my specific area, but the thing about digital things is it's, they kind of have, because you can just duplicate them and, and do whatever with them, they kind of don't have as much, it's, it's kind of different. Like if, if I open a box of photos and there's all the physical photos there, it kind of really feels like this is the, like this is the, the thing objects. that has been, has passed down through this time, you know, to get here in my hands when I look at it. Uh, whereas with a digital thing, it's more kind of, yeah, I, I'd say people tend to value physical things more than digital things, right? And I'm not too sure what the solution is around that. Not that maybe it has to be solved. Both have different properties that are good. Um, but uh, yeah, digital things kind of, I mean, I love them. I'm a computer scientist, right? <laughs> so what, what can I say? Um, one other concern with digital things too is um, they might not be able to run in like a decade or two, right? Like th think about all the flash projects that are just like, hard to run now right because yeah, yeah. it flashes like kind of being pushed out right yeah. so um having the support with like to, to assume we have the technology to actually access these things 100 years in the future um hard to say if we'll be able to right whereas with a physical object it's like well it's still a physical thing unless it's blown up or something like you're on fire or something it'll you can sur survive the test of time and uh kind of in that sense so yeah Items in the physical world can kind of biodegrade over time. Digital items are less likely to, but we'll need to be able to run them, which is another whole issue in itself. So, I was going to use the word antique, but I think there's a maybe the better word is like relic status. I walk in and I see a physical object. I recognize from my past what that used to represent. Yeah. I know, air quotes, know that uh, they don't exist anymore and shouldn't be able to run on anything. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I... What was it? Uh, there's an emulator for, maybe it was classic Nintendo, but um, like Super Mario would run at 10 times the speed because the process would over, or overclock, or maybe uh, it was Final <laughs> Fantasy. One of, the, sure, one of these, one of these retro yeah. kind of, yeah. Um, but it seems like on a very slim scale, like for example, console designers are recognizing this issue and trying to um, try to balance both. Yeah, and, and, and it, like um, yeah, the Nintendo Switch is a perfect example of this because um, you know yeah, like they have an adapter for GameCube controllers that came out what like twenty years ago now. <laughs> like this yeah. is kind of insane, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but the, it's just because you know all of the super intense Super Smash Bros. players, those are, that is the controller they're playing, you know, with you know that is the one that they want to use. So yeah, I mean it, it kind of 
goes to show that, you know, retrofitting, I mean, yeah, again, having this backwards compatibility is something, um, I think we're going to see more of it as, as tech over the years. Cause you know, yeah, people have this nostalgia for old technology. They want to still run those old games they have, uh, but they're hard to access after a while, right? Like, uh, the original Super Nintendo, uh, it only has the kind of red, white, and yellow kind of three-prong right. video output. Or, yeah, yeah. or I don't RCA, know, even know RCA if that. Cables, or yeah. maybe it doesn't even have that, right? And so, yeah. like, I don't know how I could plug that into my TV. Now I need an adapter. You know, <laughs> yeah, it gets yeah. kind of crazy. Yes, well, going back, uh, I, well, not going back, uh, just looking at this conversation. Uh, so I was thinking about you too because I came across an article where some... I'm a very judgmental person, but it, it felt a little pretentious. But there's a very, very famous, I guess, artist in the States who is merging, um, kind of like what you're talking about. I don't know if he's using evolutionary um, programming, but uh, he calls it just uh, like an artificial intelligence where he's feeding in visual images and they create these like uh, projections of 3D, whatever. So he did a Google search of all images of, I think it was Central Park, then his... Computers, I don't know if it's his or, or contract, but the sure. computer system uh, pairs out anything with a human figure in it. And then it sorts them by date and by color and like whatever it is. And then the program will merge them into art. I'm air quoting a lot. Um, what makes me feel a little skeptical about the whole thing is that it then turns into uh, sort of like three-dimensional morphing patterns that we're, that are kind of... Let's yeah. be, again, I'm being very judgmental, but that, that you I see everywhere. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of more, um, yeah, it's very, you end up with kind of like blobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, or blobs something like or that. three-dimensional, sh- or yeah, yeah twisting uh, a canvas that's floating there, you know. Yes. Um, and then, of course, the, uh, the color palette's always evolving. But I, I was thinking about you because, you know, I've been thinking about selfishly, well, that maybe that's the wrong word, but selfishly, my own art, which I've been uh, not neglecting, but I've been thinking a lot about how to change the way I can present my image and move away from printing it on, you know, fine art, archival piece of paper. And I, I instantly thought like of you, because we were talking, you were talking about getting a projector and, you know, mapping out different spaces. And we haven't talked about this yet, but the, the idea of <laughs> yeah. being able to take, uh, some of my built images and find ways to make them interactive in a room. Interesting. Um, but how and why, I have no idea. And, uh, you know, because I don't understand computers and how they work, but you, you are in this world, uh, in this it's kind of techie space. scene. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, also in a creative one because you're not in a programming sense. Yes, of course. Yeah, exactly. Right. I like to, it's really, yeah, like the coding. I mean, it is an art to code in itself, like to good, write good code. But I, I will say, I think that at the end of the day, it really is just a means to create something, right? It's just like, you know, just like the paint on a, you know, in a bucket. You know, you gotta. It's just another tool that you can use to create. Um, I've been thinking a lot about my images in terms of storytelling, um, but I hear that a lot in the way you talk about your programming, um, even the idea of building a chair. <laughs> through the rigors of, uh, you know, a programming world and these tests that don't have to actually occur in real life. Yeah. I think a lot of people would question the validity of the results of those tests too. Yes, it's, yeah. it's actually a huge issue because um, to build a simulation that mimics the real world is pretty tough. Like sure. to the, you know, so uh, oftentimes it's kind of a good starting point, but eventually you need to build this chair and test it in the real world right? and see how is it going to actually perform. Um, but it's kind of interesting because you could take it to an extreme. Let's say you're making a 3d printed chair. Well, now I could do all the tests in the real world and, you know, by having like a, a weight drop on it yeah, and then it, video, right. and it videotapes it and then it sees if the chair broke or not. And right. then if it did, you know, after a certain weight, it could improve on it. So you could, you know, you could really get some interesting data that way, but, um, just for cost efficiency, right? Like to do it in a simulation first. Usually most uh, developers do that because 3D printing chairs is, you know, gets expensive after the hundredth one or whatever. So, yeah. (laughs) A couple of thoughts here. I mean, number one, uh, which I think came up with my talk with Evelyn at the camera store, but there is this sentiment, particularly photography in the digital world, um, that you can either say an image is not a photograph or a person is not a photographer. I mean, that's a little bit more damning until you've printed the image itself. 
Interesting. And so yeah. the whole thing at the beginning in particular is, especially with these cameras and you can take price like hundreds of thousands of actuations and just fill your computer with all kinds of random data. And then you can live in this sort of a self-supplied world in your mind about whether it's good or not. You can put it on Instagram, you can see if popular or not. Um, but like you talked about opening a box and seeing an antique photo or, or seeing a photograph, like a physical photograph of yourself when you're like two years old, there's something uh, not real yet yeah. until you've made it into a physical, into physical, the physical thing. Yeah. It, it, absolutely. And uh, yeah, like this, um, I experimented with this actually for Christmas this year for all my family. So I, uh, I basically, I didn't know what to get everyone this year. So what I decided to do is I visited... Um, a makerspace in Calgary called Fuse 33. Um, really cool space, like super cool. They make all the make fashion stuff there that you see at Beakerhead and all the cool stuff. Um, uh, and they helped me basically laser cut. I made these little tokens uh, and it had the person's name on them that I was gifting it to, plus a restaurant I wanted to take them to. And it was like a little like token that they could redeem through me. And, and it, you know, it was a fun, I think people really appreciated it because it was this physical Again, memento, they were like, well, great. I just, I love this and I'll keep this forever. Plus we have this experience and we can go to other restaurants. So it's kind of a, there was something about it. Like I, um, yeah, I, I kind of, uh, it's that personal, the fact that it's physical makes it like, if I just sent them a picture, uh, on like Instagram of this, code or something, of yeah. this, yeah. doesn't have that same effect, right? It's, yeah. the, it's the fact that like someone hung it on their tree after and it was like, I'll keep this on my tree now. And you know, so just, you can do. I, again, I don't know what, um, like, it's definitely interesting because, yeah, with the use of, like, augmented reality headsets that are likely to come out this decade, um, you know, that line between what is real, like, physical and not is, is kind of blurred a bit more um, because, really, like, we could have, like, hologram-like things that look perfectly real uh, to us. But, again, I think it's something about the physical... You know, even if I had a hologram of that token, I don't think it would have that same weight to it, I guess, emotionally, maybe. Or I don't know. It's, yeah. I, I'm just having this flashback. I, I mean, you know, uh, from a, a movie and media thing. I mean, obviously, whenever you think of, obviously for me, whenever I think of AR, you know, Minority Report and all this stuff come up. Totally. But yeah. when you're talking about the need for tactile interaction, and it's been dealt with many ways, but I think it's also in Minority Report, but originally in... I can't remember if it's Ghost in the Shell or something, but in the, you know, the comic book's written in, uh, shit, I don't remember, 92 or a long time. You know, the Japanese culturally, they have a very different approach to, a, oh, absolutely. to, to everything. Of course. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, these things have come up even then, you know, that, so they're projecting like all science fiction writers do. So this technology wasn't even uh, uh, plausible at that time. Yeah. It was just like sci-fi. Yeah. Like pure sci-fi right. at the time. Yeah. And they're so like, well, like, what if? But they, I think they've already questioned this idea that it's not good enough for an image to just present itself in your eyes. Like there needs to be, so in theirs, yeah. I think one of them was like, a, I think it was my report, but they're in a pornographic or in a sex shop and, you know, the people are being pleasured by these computer programs, but they have to wear suits because well, otherwise, otherwise it's yeah. just, yeah, yeah, just like, you know, that's it. It's, in just, fact, it's just like watching a movie. I think movie. somebody created that. They, I, I think I saw it at CES this year. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, I will say, that is definitely an industry that is growing, uh, especially with VR and stuff. Um, yeah, apparently some of those major, like, X-rated sites are, hot, like, highly invested in VR technology right now. Like, they are, like, one of the main investors in it. So, yeah, which is kind of interesting. Outside, yeah, outside so, of the moral compass or discussion of uh, what that industry, you know, represents, et cetera, but... Um, just on a technological thing, it's fascinating uh, because they would have the most vested interest from a commercial side to uh, want to make this into a uh, physical interaction. Uh, oh, of course. <laughs> yes, and it's true. But I, and that's the thing, but it really does extend to um, so many other things. Like, again, with this HoloLens, um, how uh, this version worked is you basically, you'd see holograms around you and to, you could grab them by going like this. It was kind of like a little pat, like make a little L with your hand and then go up and down with them. Um, but, you know, it didn't really feel like I was grabbing a cup, right? Like it's, there's something, there's, when you grab something, it's pushing back against yeah, your body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like, you just, it has a weight to it. It has, there's something about it 
you can feel if something's cheap or not, maybe just by picking it up, right? Some, you know, something's light and plasticky versus like a nice ceramic or something. Um, Depending on the context, I suppose. It, it, yeah. Yes, yeah. I should say, yeah, the, yeah. you know, it depends yeah, what well, it is, right? But it's great. Um, well, even the idea, all I was thinking about is uh, like, how do you choose a good watermelon? Right? So yeah. some people say, well, wait, some people smell it, but but it's the same thing. I mean, it's actually advice for this because I don't know how to find a good watermelon. <laughs> so, okay. Well, it's, it's, yes, generally, uh, it's fairly yes. arbitrary. That, you know, every culture has a different approach to uh, a tactile interaction with any kind of market thing, you know? Uh, no, it's fascinating. Anyways, uh, sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, well, no, I think, I, I mean, yeah, I was, and, and yeah, like with our cell phones, like with our smartphones, really, yeah, right now we're limited to, yeah, like a visual. And like we're touching the screen, I think the more senses that we can use with our technology, the better. Like I think I mean, taste is getting kind of weird, and smell. I don't know about those senses, but but at least for sure, I think like um, yeah, like physical uh, audio and like obviously visual. You know, those are those are they're the three really key kind of parts that I think um, some of those senses senses have been just completely negle neglected as uh, technology has progressed, so. Um, I think I read, aren't there movie theaters now that have uh, air, so they had the D-Box <laughs> where they shake. Yes. They've tried, well, 3D, although it's improved a lot. Uh, it's, it's reasonably palatable. Don't get as yeah, much as it used to. Yeah. Oh, of course, yeah, uh, compared to the. No, definitely the, not at the red, blue. Compared uh, to Spy Kids 3D or whatever yeah. it was. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, and then, yeah, Atmos sound and, you know, like 3D immersive audio. But I read somewhere that some of these theaters have uh, smells. Yes, they... Um, <laughs> Have you ever been to one? I, I've never heard of this well, one. I mean, I've read about it. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't been to the theater. I've, I've been to the, um, like, to Disneyland, and they have kind of similar, they've had similar experiences. So oh. they had a, I think it's gone now, but um, they had, like, a Bug's Life theater, and basically they would spray you with water at a certain point. Or, like, <laughs> or it, the seats had, like, would poke you unexpectedly oh, if, no. to feel like bugs were, you know, doing it. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, I, I think the thing with, um, smell and it's, it feels a bit gimmicky because people are spraying scents like perfumes into the theater. Right. But that's not really how we smell something as we walk through the streets and stuff. Right. It's a much more subtle experience. Um, I, I think that like, obviously if, if smell can be accurately represented, I think it'll be amazing. But I think we're still a bit bit away from it, you know, and and that's I mean I haven't tried the newest tech, but it sounds to me they're spraying some you know? yeah, there's like a, a little dude there like yeah, underneath like, a chair. Yeah, this smells <laughs> like oranges. Stick. Yeah, right. Like this is like you know yeah. So which you know it's still an interesting concept. I encourage people to explore these things, but yeah, there's a, I mean you brought up earlier with uh, the focus on some neuro neuroscience. I think, uh, but I guess one of the big Barriers that's a frightening one is if we could actually directly connect these experiences to our to our brain, like hardwire them. Yes, and like Neuralink, um, like Elon Musk's company, you know, is really working on that. And it sounds, yeah, it's kind of hard to say what that type of technology will be capable of. Like, it will it be Matrix style, like I now know kung fu, or is it going to be more of like a, a means of interacting with things? So. I can just think about what I want to type and it will type it or, you know, and, and, you know, those technologies are definitely being developed, but once again, you know, I think, I think it is interesting to look into the mind like as a means for controlling technology, but, um, there's something to, again, be said about having physical interactions. Like, um, I'm personally not a huge fan of like uh, voice interactions actually. And, uh, and the reason for it is because, for me to say a sentence of exactly to describe, like like the lights in my house, they they are all smart light bulbs, right? And so for me to say, light bulb one turn red, light bulb two turn blue, like that's a huge sentence to say, right? And yes. so, um, whereas I could just like kind of tap a button on my phone and do the same thing, right? And it's I think the effort it takes, like I think humans are really used to interacting with things in a physical way, and so uh, it's. Hard to say if that'll go away or, or what direction it'll move as technology progresses. And um, yeah, but you know, again, super cool sci-fi tech. I mean, there's, the possibilities are endless, right? Like, who knows where this is gonna go? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I always have the the paranoia underneath where it's like, 
you know, from the addiction perspective, if I can hard link, then that, that line between who I am and what's real, like, like the matrix, uh, suggesting so many uh, stories before and after have uh, divulged but Christ, that's a frightening idea. How quickly people will lose themselves completely. Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, yeah, it's potentially. Really, yeah. And I think that's the thing, like, um, like with any technology, it can be used for very bad things, you know, like, but I think, um, I mean, I love the Black Mirror show, right? Because it's always showed this like kind of novel technology that seems just within our reach going crazy. Um, but I think, um, I think overall, you know, like at the end of the day, it's mostly tends to be tried to use for good at least. Like who knows, like it could be used for bad. I think, um, but I mean, I guess I should say this, like within our lifetime, we've seen some issues like this. So with social media collecting all of our data, you know, everyone's like, I just, I just want to talk to all my friends on the internet. Uh, suddenly all these companies know everything about you. You know, it's like, that's kind of not, that wasn't, that wasn't kind of the intent originally, but suddenly we're here in where, you know, these big companies know everything about us. And um, like, apparently uh, there was a case where like Amazon's algorithm was able to tell someone was pregnant before they even knew it. You know, based on like their purchasing his, like, like they start his, sending baby stuff. Yeah, they sent it to like their family or something. You know, it's like kind of that's kind of weird. You know, kind of just a bit strange, right? That these computers can predict our behavior in such a way, um, and and that's why you also often you know hear people saying, well, you know, oh, Facebook's listening through the app or whatever. They're not listening. They they just the data they have is so good. Like they don't even have to listen. They they can really predict what your intent is based on what you're talking about and what your friends are talking about. Maybe your friends are talking about you in another conversation saying, I'm thinking about getting this person this because they like this. Now Facebook knows that about you. So it gets very kind of um, interesting, right? So yeah, I'm not too sure. And I, I think though this decade is gonna, there is gonna be a bit of a pushback against that data collection like there already has been. Um, because yeah, right now people just, like it's kind of hard to understand like how much info these companies do have on us. and. How do I control that info, right? So, but you know, there's policies in place that are working towards that. So, um, yeah. Anyways, well, <laughs> ranty thing again. Yeah, no, it's good, <laughs> yeah. uh, especially yeah. because I I always rant about uh, you know the problems with our current evolutionary state of the so-called free market capitalist yada yada yada. But <clears throat> I'm going to bring it up anyways because you know as uh, someone is teaching the the youth to code and to enter this digital realm, which is essentially the new economy, <clears throat> a new economy. Um, you know, this counter pressure of it being about personal or commercial wealth, you know, about creativity, programming, building things for the sake of earning money versus the so-called idealistic pure idea of yeah. uh, in and of itself. Um, you know, there's, there's always fairy tales, for example, like we'll tell about Instagram. Like when it first came, it was just about the photographers, which is likely not actually true, but, you know, yeah, there but may it was have a different a principle. Right. Yeah, that was a totally, core idea, and then here's how it was. Yeah, it's been purchased yeah. and turned into an advertising platform, et cetera. Um, do you have any insight, like, about which way both, let's say, the young, uh, presumably the mostly Calgarians are coming into your class and how they talk about what they want out of it, like, are you seeing any pressures of um, where either they want to go or how people are coming for them and how people are... I mean, you just... This thing you do in Toronto was a pitch. So, yeah, it, yeah, it was, right? Like, I guess... Um, I mean, yeah, there's a couple, I guess, sides to this. So, one, I guess, I will say that the people that are coming out of, like, these computer science programs, they really do seem to have, like, the best intentions at heart. You know, like, they, they really... Um, in tech, like, there's kind of this you know, idea like I can change the world and I can do this, right? And like, for the better, right? Like that's kind of the the thing that uh, we're all kind of brainwashed to believe, I guess, you know? And so um, yeah, there really is like this positive kind of attitude towards it. But um, I think um, as far as, uh, so you were kind of also asking about like, you know, who's coming here and, and where what students are doing after, I guess, or yeah. like, yeah, like a, a lot of students, um, I find that there's kind of two paths a lot of students typically take, like a, if they're going into industry, you know, if they're going into research, that's another whole thing. But um, at the end of the day, typically 
yeah, students really are looking to change the world and, and have that impact. Um, it's just where, where you think, like, where can you make that impact, right? And, and sometimes it's like, hey, at Google, I can do this, or at a startup, I can change the way that this world is working, right? So, um, yeah, I don't, I, you know, they're different. They're different, I guess. Yeah, yeah so. I guess my worry or reflection is this ever-present narrative in my mind of where does all this idealism go wrong? You know, like yeah. when Facebook's, oh, well, seeing Mark Zuckerberg, obviously not knowing, he seems like he's likely a sociopath in the first place. But, you know, you get somebody who idealistically or on the top surface narrative just wants to connect people or, you know, I don't, I can't remember if Google, was, were they always a search engine? But, um, you know, whatever, the, even Wikipedia, wherever it is, like there's this core presuming concept where they're like, you know, people should have, access to free knowledge and people should yeah. be able to tell where all of these look how crappy um you know alta vistas and this is so hard to find this and that like we can do it better um but when they hit a certain level even amazon you know like the or netflix you know i was joking the other day about i wonder if any of the kids would realize they used to mail vhs and dvds, DVDs to to, yeah that yeah. was their original business yeah. model yeah it's crazy yeah, <laughs> yeah i don't think they would even could even comprehend that well, that's where this company like, started what yeah, yeah like there must have been a warehouse it was like red you know uh and even when i, I was young and that came out i was like that's, they're not gonna last like who i can go to the blockbuster except they had the you know uh the presence to just be like that's not gonna last <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and it's interesting because apparently um someone told me this so but, you know but um, but basically, apparently, Netflix originally, the way they first got streaming is they got all these big companies to sign these deals to let them, what was perceived to be um, the ability to stream just trailers, that was like the company's understanding, but the contract said they could just stream the whole movies <laughs> or something like that. And and that's how they actually got started, like initially. Oh. And it was like a big, like five-year contract or something. And yeah, yeah. they just kind of went off with it. Um but yeah, it's interesting because with Netflix specifically, like they, they saw a problem and they addressed it with the current technology they had in mind and ruthlessly kept trying to improve that experience until the technology was ready, right? And so, um, and, and that's what being like a startup is all about. Like I, that's what excites me about doing startup-y stuff because it's like, I see a problem. Let's try to tackle this as best we can. And, um, you know, we're, we're not going to stop until we, we get you know, get there. Right. And, and, uh, so yeah, I think, I think the, but as far as like, you know, transitioning, yeah, from that, like kind of very genuine, um, kind of mission to solve. Right. And then once you're a big company, it, it transforms into different things. Right. Um, yeah, I'm not too sure. I guess I'm not, I'm not really too sure where things go awry money gets in the way, I guess, you know, and that's kind of the, but not all the time, right? Like, I think it depends on their business model, right? So because that's such a valuable industry, it's kind of hard to ignore, you know, for these other companies that they, that was their whole business model from the start, you know, like we have all this data. Um, I think, yeah, a couple of years ago, I read a stat, like every user on Facebook is worth like $80 to them basically, mm -hmm. uh, per year. Um, but it's only valuable if you have all the data, not just one person, because otherwise you can't make the trends, right? So it's kind of this interesting thing. Um, data is like, having clean data is really what can power these companies to do what they do, and is really where the value comes from. Like, um, sometimes uh, a large company will buy a small company just because they have a data set, right? And that's, it'll be worth like, billion dollars or something you know like crazy because they're the only one that has like like you know hundred thousand images of like of this core of, core principle was of this thing right so yeah it's kind of interesting um well, it's fascinating <laughs> I, I remember when i was younger always complaining to people that you know they and companies at least on a marketing advertising level not that i studied stats but they don't understand data or stats and often um manipulate so you talk about using the adjective like clean data which a lot of i don't hear a lot uh, but that must be in the industry such an important phrase um, 
my wife and I, uh, speaking of giving information away, we uh, we submitted spit and tubes to 23 one of the Oh, yeah, DNA one of the tests. DNA yeah. testing things. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Like, yeah. I'm getting to the stage where, like, I, I just almost click yes to everything that I sign into because I'm like, fuck it, you already have my you data. Really like, already who know cares? Yeah, yeah like uh, which is probably not the right attitude, which I hear a lot of young people are counter, uh, there's a counter movement, but that's also historically how humans work, you know, uh, ebb and flow. But, um, there's something, you know, when, uh, I think when we first got it back, uh, mine said, some, you know, it was pretty disappointing because 23andMe is a American-based North American company. They have a lot of data from data, data from um, Europe and from Caucasian people and, and from the general like, sets. Or, kind of European uh, area. Yeah, yeah or the people that could afford to pay, you know, for this. You know, there's, yes, there's a lot of weird of demographic uh, things. It, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, like, the first week, uh, first time we got it, we were so excited because, you know, we're thinking, like, you know, maybe it'll give us some cool insights. I, I've had a lot of health issues and um, just generally uh, because my wife's Taiwanese and I'm Korean, but uh, um, but essentially I don't know anything other than that I'm Korean. But <laughs> yeah. the test comes back and it says, well, you're 98% Korean and, uh, and they had a couple of weird things. But what's been fascinating is that every month I'll get an update as their data set Oh, is their evolves. database is changing. Interesting. And then it'll change the results. Yep. So they're not, they because they have a lot of disclaimers, you know, they're like, oh, yeah. yeah, and they have legal liability. But one of them is kind of like, you know, we had, we acknowledge that we, maybe we've got, it's going to be more than 200,000, but let's say 200,000 people have given us data. So it's only statistically this valid, you know, this idea of standard deviations is one that's very complex for the normal human being, but of course, yeah. um, they'll say something like that. Uh, but what's fascinating, at least for mine, and it hasn't been uh, so much for Helen, Mine has swung as much as saying that I'm now 10% Japanese. Really? Uh, so it's, yes, yeah, shifted it's shifted over the months. Yeah. yeah um, well. Which is fun to joke about with my parents, but it just shows how much the, the data can change it, what you're seeing at the end. It does. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's an just, interesting idea. Yeah. And it's, it's very interesting because like in that example, um, and yeah, it really goes to show how the data influences the algorithms, right? That are that are running behind the scenes. And yeah, the concern is with once computers are making decisions with this data, is the data tainted in a way that maybe uh, it shouldn't be, right? And and is now doing like weird prejudice stuff or you know making unethical decisions just because the data set happened to like misrepresent things, right? So it's uh, yeah, it's a huge. It's a huge issue with um, with machine learning because uh, in AI because if you don't have data like your your the artificial intelligence system is only as smart as the data you give it really so if you know if I only give let's say I'm making an app and it detects like um, between like dogs and cats. And suddenly, and I give it a bunch of images of like dogs and I give it a bunch of images with cats. Um, and then I show it a picture of a chicken. <laughs> it's going to still try to fit it into a dog or cat c category right. because it has no idea about that. Right. And we didn't tell it to, uh, um, yeah. So it's kind of interesting, right? Like it, and, and that's kind of the, anyways, it, that it just, yeah, that example goes to reveal another whole issue with these things, right? Like it's where it, yeah, before, yeah. so just sort of uh, as a start to wrap up, can you give me an explanation like uh, to a five-year-old what an algorithm actually is? Sure. Because that's such a, that's such a catchphrase now. Sure. Okay. Is it, is it, okay, yeah. yeah I, I, so basically algorithm uh, is basically a set of instructions. So um, the way I see it is it's like a recipe uh, if you were cooking. Step one, do this. Step two, uh, stir it three times. Step three, or you know, you can go on, and that's really all an algorithm is. It's it's a, it's telling uh, the computer what to do in a recipe, and uh, yeah, and it has you know you can give it things as inputs like the ingredients in a recipe, and then out comes a cake as an output. So it's, would you say then? So I guess then all of the catchphrase issue of the idea of an algorithm. Would it, it would imply that there should be some liability to the people programming it. Potentially, yes. Yeah. The the hard thing is though, with AI again, is now we are writing instructions for it to come up with its own instructions. 
So who's liable as the computer comes up with the instructions? Um, that's where it gets tricky, right? But yeah, absolutely. If a programmer is creating something and, you know, sets off some weird like bomb or something by accident, you know, who's, someone should be liable, right? And yeah. um, Or even talking with these corporations and the idea of what the intended use of the data collection was meant for, I mean, such an obscure... And no one will take responsibility really for that. But. I think the main thing is just transparency, right? Like, I just want to know what my data is being used for. Like, as a society, are we willing to give up the convenience of these tools or to pay for these tools? No. Um, right? Like, that's the thing, right? Just because we want... Like, I think the thing is, like, yes, we don't want our data used for these things. But also, we don't want to pay... For these services either so it's kind of like you know um it, it we get it's kind of it's tough right like um but you know but you do start to see that a bit again i think things are moving in that direction where we're going to start seeing more transparency there's a huge pushback like you know people are deleting their facebook accounts people are just off social media but um the thing is at the end of the day even if you don't have a social media account like you can still be tracked basically. Uh, you, it does not need you to have an account to, um, for it to understand who this person is. It's like called ghost profiles or whatever. It's kind of just by association. Exactly. Like it will say, Hey, who's the other person in the group that all the friends are talking about, you know, and it will make up a profile for you in the background. So (laughs) it's kind of, even if it's not directly, um, yeah. Like, um, another crazy example is like, um, Google, for example, can detect, let's say you're not signed into a Google account or something like that, uh, and your family shares like a Wi-Fi network, based on how you are typing, even on Google search, it can put you, determine who you are, like based on the keystrokes even, right? So it, it really comes down to these minute things that humans can't even, you know, comprehend, like, well, not that we can't comprehend it, it's just you wouldn't necessarily think that oh, the way I type my name, like a Google search is being tracked. You know, everything is, it's everything you do. The amount you scroll down the page or, you know, it, we do these things in very subtle ways that are uh, are different uh, for everyone, are unique, so. Do you think, well, I mean, we're spending too much time uh, bashing the industry. And, and to be fair, yeah, I, I don't necessarily, not that I, you know, I'm against these big companies. I just think it is something that people should be more aware of how their data is being used. That's this more, it's more like, Hey, here's how it actually works <laughs> behind the scenes. Right. So just to kind of close it up, you know, so taking back everything that we've covered in the last hour, um, as I drink from my Google cup. Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> we can't get away from it. See, right? I mean, I mean, to be, Look, again, I'm a tech lover. I really like tech. So I, I this is great. Yeah. But, I mean, Every time I use Wikipedia and they ask me for five bucks, I think I paid them once in the last 10 years. So Yeah, right. It, it goes to show we're, we're not willing to pay for these services, yeah. really, you know, and it's... But we complain this entitlement. But yeah, now we're going to get too philosophical. It's been another hour. Um, just to kind of wrap it back, you know, bring it back then to Calgary. Sure. And to your experiences here, both in the tech world, startup world, teaching. Um, you know, what's Calgary's tech scene like I mean, you're going to Toronto for an opportunity and it's not yes. happening here. So, yeah. um, you know, what kind of startups are you seeing here? Well, not to be too specific, but yeah, like if you had to give a general idea of... Well, things, I mean, here things are growing, right? Like, um, for example, this week Tech Fest is coming up at the university uh, where there's going to be like 50 startups there or something. Just like uh, all for computer science students to, for tar- like, to basically hire computer science students and software engineering people for here, um, which is great. It's a local thing. Uh, so things are uh, really ramping up. I think being Calgary in Calgary at this time, it, it is the time where we're going to start to see some very cool companies um, really developing. Like, yeah, I'm going to Toronto this summer, but uh, my intention is to come back here and take what I learned and grow it here. You know, I, I think that like we have plenty of resources here to put things together and and develop things. But it's hard because, you know, a lot of times, like when I graduated my undergraduate degree, um, months before I even graduated, I was contacted by recruiters around the world saying, hey, like there is an offer. Um, 
hey, we'll pay for your housing for a year in San Francisco and pay you um, just to live here for a year, you know, <laughs> like, because like, we need, like, there's a huge, even though Silicon Valley has all these tech people, they actually still need way more. And so they're, they are paying like crazy just to get people there. Um, and so it's really easy to leave, but I think, I don't think we should be leaving necessarily. I think that staying in Calgary and growing it, um, growing it right here, there's like, we should be doing it. Like I, I love the city, right? And uh, I want to see it grow and uh, kind of investing more in tech here. Uh, like tech is just in all facets of, of everything right now, it seems. And so um, why not do it here? We have plenty of inf infrastructure. Uh, some friends and I were, were starting um, uh, this AI club here, actually. So we just kind of started doing this the last couple months. Um, but our goal is really to build a community around... Um, People who just want to kind of get their feet wet with um, AI, and then uh, in doing so, we also kind of like to work with local kind of companies here and stuff to help them, you know, implement it in their thing. So um, our current project right now is uh, we're working with Luke's Cafe in the Central Library, uh, and we're building a little robot that delivers coffee for them. Uh, with and so you know, it's kind of a fun little project. Um, but this is uh, uh, like. You know, yeah, we can do this here, right? We have the the resources. I think uh, we just need uh, to get everyone together to start really thinking that they can develop these things here, right? And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing Calgary grow. I think technology is going to be a huge part of Calgary's future. It really is growing. Like there are tons of tech startups here, so it's uh, you kind of just have to know where to look right now. But they're they're coming. Um. Final question, I mean, just to bring it back to the, I mean, the, I agree with you. I think that programming in this whole world is creative in and of itself. But um, any thought finally to the idea of kind of what you brought up, merging app writing, your coding ability, creative thinking startup with the idea of art and culture and, uh, and expression, be it tourism, or individual artists or all that kind of stuff. Is there a sense either that there is a prevalent sort of interest in that in Calgary or that there's a possibility that, that is a conversation we should be having? Well, yeah, so I guess, um, yeah, I should say again with tech, it really, you can't just have the tech, it needs an application and like a certain area to work with, right? And arts is one of those areas, like it, 100%. Um, I think that, like, I would love to see more of it here, personally. I. I love arts. I want to see more of it everywhere I go. I have all these weird artsy ideas all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I think there needs to be more focus on, like, I think by incorporating technology into art, we start to create these new experiences that, again, coding is really just a means to create things. And so it's just another paintbrush or it's just another, you know, sculpting tool, right? Um, uh, but it's a newer tool. And so if we can think of new ways to uh, make use of these cool technologies to create art, I think that it, you know, has the potential to be very successful, right? And just for to get a lot of attention, and and so I think Calgary should focus on it, of course, right? And everywhere should focus on it. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's kind of my two cents, I guess. I uh, I'd love to see more art here. I'd love to see more technology art, more specifically in general. So, you know, I hope Sasha that uh, that you aren't a lone example. And that this becomes something that uh, can grow here. Uh, but I also have a cynical fear, of course, that you know, money does rule uh, as much as it's an important necessary. I'm learning to admit that it's necessary and it has a value. <laughs> um, but particularly in Calgary, I fear that, uh, you know, that it has a powerful effect on how people direct their energy. So I think the thing is, though... Um you know, when we think about art and stuff, it doesn't necessarily have to be like not profitable either. You know, like it's, they're not mutually exclusive, right? Like um, we can create really cool experiences that, you know, like can get funding to be made and then potentially, you know, just can, like people are willing to pay for these types of things, right? And so um, it's a great way to to see where we can take these technologies, right? Art's a great way to do that. And in doing so, we'll start to uncover maybe things that, 
you know, we wouldn't have otherwise, right? And so, again, I, I which could have value in the traditional sense of money making, right? So, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think uh, we just have to kind of we have to be creative in the ways that we we approach it, right? So, yeah. Thanks, Sasha. Sweet. Yeah. yeah thank you. Man. Thanks so much. It was yeah. great. Yeah. It was uh, great. Yeah. Okay. So. I'm going to turn this off. Cool. This episode is brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. The APN is a project created by Karen Unlin to provide support and community to local podcast initiatives here in Alberta. Podcasts like the Canadian Podcast Award winner, Cross Pollination. What happens when you combine different fields, knowledge, and talents to create something new? Find out on Cross Pollination. Click on the Business and Marketing section on the Alberta Podcast Network homepage, albertapodcastnetwork.com. Ooh.